It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 164 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most exciting and promising young actors in the business, a 25-year-old British actor of Nigerian descent who shot to international stardom in 2015 as one of the three principal stars of J.J. Abrams' Star Wars The Force Awakens, which received rave reviews and became the third highest grossing film of all time and who now is starring in one of the best-reviewed films of 2017 so far, Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. I'm talking, of course, about John Boyega. Boyega first crossed the radar of some in Hollywood, including Abrams, with his big-screen debut in the 2011 British indie Attack the Block, a sci-fi horror comedy in which he starred as a resident of a South London housing project descended upon by alien monsters. Over the ensuing few years, he made a TV pilot for Spike Lee, appeared opposite Kiefer Sutherland in Fox's 24 Live Another Day miniseries, and anchored the film that won the audience award at the 2014 Sundance Film Festival, Imperial Dreams. But his profile exploded in April 2014, when word got out that Abrams had tapped him for the first installment of Star Wars in a decade. Twenty months later, when the movie opened, people around the world were introduced to Boyega as Finn a disillusioned stormtrooper who joins the Resistance. Boyega will appear in his next Star Wars film, the Ryan Johnson-directed The Last Jedi, this coming December. But in the meantime, he can be seen in Detroit, a film based on a true story which began rolling out in select theaters on August 4th and soon will expand to many more, and which Boyega has called, quote, the biggest movie of my career so far, close quote, and, quote, far beyond anything I've ever done, close quote. In it, he plays Melvin Dismukes, a security guard who, during the 1967 Detroit riot, winds up in the Motor City's Algiers Motel as a horrific instance of police brutality unfolds before his eyes. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Boyega and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how he became enamored with acting at a young age and how he wound up landing his first film role over 1,500 other London teens, why he grew a bit disillusioned after repeatedly being asked to star in what he calls, quote, urban movies, close quote, early in his career, what the long process that led to him being in Star Wars entailed, and what he has learned and experienced, good, bad, and ugly, since his casting was announced, why he feels so passionately about Detroit, and what he makes of the race-related questions that have been raised by and about the film, what details he can tease about The Last Jedi, 
and how he learned about and has handled the death of his close collaborator in that film, Carrie Fisher, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. John, thank you so much for doing this. How you doing? We always just begin with a basic. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I'm born and raised in, in London. My, my dad's a minister, and my mum worked in a place for disabled people. Sure. She was a caretaker for them. I, I was reading interviews with you and profiles going back to the, the very beginning, and it seems like, as far as the very beginning for you of acting... It goes back to, what were you, Leopard? <laughs> that was what it sounded like in one of these interviews? Or some school stuff that yeah. I was doing back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just doing it for fun. Yeah, but you yeah. did you know very early on that this was something you were particularly into, or was it just one of a lot of things? Um, no, it's just, this this was just my thing from, from, from early on. So I decided to just pursue it. It was a hobby at first. Who is Teresa Early? Um, that's my um, theatre director. From, from my, the first theatre school I attended. And at how young was that? I started when I was nine or ten, I think, and I was there for a few years. But, yeah, she was basically the one that, that got me into acting, like, professionally. Because she had seen you at, like a, at a school, just a regular kind of school play, and saw yeah, something? It was one, it was one, of, a, one of a teacher. One, well, my teacher told an, another teacher at her school. Yeah. And then she came down and she saw me in something. Did she ever tell you what it was about you that impressed her? No, nah, and I didn't ask because she said I can get into a theater school for free. So I was just like, all right, cool. I'm there, right? <laughs> she has said that, that your father took some convincing that acting was a, a noble profession. No, she was talking nonsense. Yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, she was talking smack then. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. So he was always on board. Yeah, yeah, my dad was, my dad was cool with it. It, it. it wasn't it wasn't him saying that he didn't want me to do it. It was more, more like, okay, we don't know what this career is. Right. I didn't know what acting was and neither did, neither did anybody. So he just needed some, some explaining about it. Here's, a, here's another thing she said, and I just wonder if you can, it may be, maybe this is also not, not right, but she says, <laughs> quote, I think it's quite conceivable, frankly, that his father as a role model did give John a good idea of how to hold an audience. Did you get, do you think there's anything about your father's work as a, as I guess a preacher that maybe correlates with what you do. Yeah, I think so. But I've never like, I, back then I didn't think about it as like a, a thing. I didn't watch my dad and go, you know, I want to be an actor. I just, I guess it just runs in the family. He's a very right. well-spoken, charismatic man. So he just got something about him. Yeah. It sounds like one youth theater group sort of leads to another and leads to just various things. I mean, mm. performing at, Royal Albert Hall at 13, that's not every kid. Acting at some of these productions were at the National Theater. But it, it sounds like it was in 2009 when you got a, it sounds like a small role in a big ensemble that was at the Tricycle Theater yeah. in North London. Yeah, yeah. That, that was really an, a pivotal one because you were, again, seen by somebody who took an interest in you, right? No, I got Tricycle off. That was my first job as an actor. At the the first professional job. Yeah, my professional. But wasn't it through that that Joe Cornish first learned about you? I don't know if he came to the play. I don't know. Yeah. I found out about Attack the Block through for an open audition online. You had just read it that there was there was yeah, a I read about it. production I mean, in London. In that... London, yeah. Between that open audition and actually going for a professional audition, I got I got an agent. So then I was able to to, to go in like you know the the much more. How did the agent? Way happen? How did that come about? 
I went to a, a, another drama school called Identity Drama School, mm-hmm. and the founder, Femi Ogins, became my agent after he saw me. You know, obviously, in in the uh, pieces that they had at the school, and then and then I got tri school. Gotcha. That was two thousand nine. By two thousand eleven, you were you were in Attack the Block, and we should yeah. say for anyone who hasn't yet seen it, this you're playing Moses, who's a resident of a. South London housing project that ends up targeted by aliens or, you know, people from things from out of this world. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Joe Cornish, the director, had looked at 1500 teens over several months, but before concluding that you were the the right guy for this. Mm -hmm. And then he said he, quote, cast the rest of the gang and attacked the block around him, around you, because he was so good and had such quiet charisma, close quote. So that's got to be quite something when you're still a teen. And I guess you're was it your first big screen yeah, thing? Yeah, definitely. To yeah. be leading a movie, yeah. how did you acclimate to that? Like it, it was, it was, it was good. It was good times. Like it came at a good time as well because I started to get frustrated at my first job. <laughs> to be honest, we're having like an honest conversation. Yeah, of course. Like, oh, okay, okay. And cool. what was but you said the first job? What was when? You, what are you referring to? At the dry school, I started to just get a little bit frustrated. Yeah. And the reason why I got frustrated is because. I was just around great, great work and, mm-hmm. and great quality of work, but I didn't have a big enough role in right. any of the plays. Right. So I just started feeling some type of way, like this is a waste of my time, to be honest with you. <laughs> I just wanted more, like I was really hungry just to get involved in something. And Attack the Block happened towards the end of the of the run at the theater. This is a character who doesn't have a lot of dialogue, which means he has to communicate his thoughts and feelings a lot through his eyes. I understand that you sort of consulted some other work to to arrive at how to do that. Is that right? Was there something with the, I mean, I'd read about The Wire and some other shows that. Yeah, I had watched, been a, like, I've been a big fan of, of those shows, but that wasn't necessarily to convey emotion. I think that that comes through like training and right. the, the general things you do to, be, to become an actor. But I think, I think The Wire was just inspirational for me because there were a lot of British actors in there who were playing Americans and I found that I found that quite quite cool and skillful. What was the most daunting part about Moses though? None none of it. It was you felt <laughs> honest. It was fun. It was we were young and still young now, but it was a different kind of young. We were like we were teenagers and we were just we were just having fun, like come to set, have fun, film the scenes, kinda of understood what it was about. It was like aliens in the hood and it wasn't <laughs> You know, it wasn't that much of a jump. We right. would, and we all lived in the hood, you know, at the right. time. So it was just kind of like, yeah, whatever then. <laughs> we'd just be like a an extreme part of ourselves. But I I just catered Moses towards, you know, the, the sci-fi heroes that I I quite liked. It's kind of like a, a silent tension. Right. My understanding is when you guys were making that movie, you figured it's going to be a small little movie, seen in England maybe. That's That was sort of the extent of it. But it gets picked up by Screen Gems. It gets distribution in the U.S. And at that point, when it was clear that it was going to get a much bigger audience than you guys had originally anticipated, what was your thought process? It's time to get to L.A. or, or what? I was already in L.A. Yeah? I was I was in L.A. like just to trying to establish my my own thing. And then, and then Screen Gems bought the rights to attack the block, well, the right to distribute. Right. And then I was, I was staying in a motel off of Hollywood Boulevard. And then they moved me at the hotel to... The, the motel to the Ritz Carlton. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I was that so it was a big it was a big few steps. Big change quickly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as soon as Screen James got that, then my accommodation changed. Yeah, I bet. And then I was introduced to Per Diem. Yes. <laughs> and how about an agent? That's when uh, Yeah, that's when I, that's when CAA. there was like a buzz about an agent and I got with CAA. 
and then and then I started auditioning out here like professionally. So what it seems like those next few years, I want to maybe mark it by saying before Imperial Dreams, which I'm going to mm. ask you about. What was going on during during those I guess two three years? There were a couple of a pilot that must have been very exciting to you that didn't end up getting picked up. This yeah, likely. the brick. The brick was kind of like what I gained from Attack the Block. Right. You know, I, the HBO was doing a really cool series, loose, loosely based off of Mike Tyson's life, and Spike Lee was directing, and it was you know it, it was a great script, but it didn't it didn't it didn't work out. Was that kind of a crushing thing at the time, or was it just on to the next thing? For me, it was onto the next solely because I just, I felt like I could have, I could have done better. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think necessarily feel like I was ready for, for that. I think everything happened really quickly. So I, I was, I was okay with it. But at the same time, obviously I w- the money would have been good. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And well, so there was after that, I guess in that period, also the 24, live another day, many series for Fox and some supporting roles in movies. But also around that time, I guess, and correct me if this order of events is wrong, but this mm. is what I had read. One of the people who caught up with and loved Attack the Block was Mrs. J.J. Abrams, who goes home and wakes up Mr. J.J. Abrams and says, you got to go check out this guy in, in this movie who is terrific. And it was because of that that he was first aware of you? Yeah, I heard that, I heard that too. And it must have been true because when I first met him, he, he already knew my, my name and I mean, you already knew about Attack the Block. And I met him because I was actually going for a, a general meeting at Bad Robot with Brian Burke. Okay. And he was coming out of the editing booth with Tom Cruise, just walking. <laughs> As um, that happens, you just yeah. bump into them, yes. I mean, I, I, I was thinking, you know, some some LA stuff, right? right. So we're in Hollywood, that's, that's kind of pretty standard. <laughs> and what did he say to you? It was really nice. He said, um, he, he really loved my work in Attack the Block. Um, and he's going to find me something, you know, he's going to find me something to, to, to be in. I didn't take him seriously, to be honest with you, <laughs> because that's kind of what everybody says yeah, right, <laughs> when you right, go for a right. for a meeting. It's like, oh no, no, we'll, we'll find you something. <laughs> well, I have to say that even before I'd seen Attack the Block, because I guess I was late to that party. I think my first introduction to your work was Imperial Dreams, which was the Sundance Film Festival Audience Award winner in 2014, and one of the producers, I guess, of this very indie movie was Jonathan Schwartz, who does a lot of movies that go to Sundance and had said, you know, come over to CAA and see this. This guy's amazing. Mm. So I did. And I wonder, because this was another one that not an outspoken character, so you really had to find other ways to communicate what was going on. Very Mm. conflicted guy. We should say the character is Bambi, a 21-year-old who gets out of prison and goes home to try to resume life with his son. How did that one come about and, and what did that one represent to you? Well, at the time, I had way too much time on my hands. <laughs> I had yeah. nothing to do. And I just needed I needed work, but I needed good work. I felt like I needed an American version of Attack the Block in, in mm. some sense, mm. a movie that would create buzz at the festivals and, and that would get my name, you know, back into the conversation in rooms. So Imperial Dreams came about and I decided to audition from London and I came over here to L.A., was this the first time you needed to nail that American accent? No, no. I mean, I'd been auditioning for American stuff throughout. Like 24, I was, I was American. Oh, right, right, right. Not particularly a great American in 24. <laughs> I sounded, I sounded Scottish in some scenes. I can't lie. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was just trying to get my, my feet wet, and I, and I was, I was 21, 22 yeah. at the time. So I was just trying to grow and, and, and learn more, and I just thought this would be a, a great project to be a part of. And 
as great as it was, and it, and it really was, on top of coming, you know, fairly soon after Attack the Block, it sounded like you had, in an interview afterwards, you had a little frustration. You said, quote, my biggest challenge is to not do urban movies for the rest of my life, those alpha hoodies. I like diversity. I am just 21, but I'm done with all the urban stuff. You get sent these urban movies, and it's the same old thing, close quote. So, so like, I sound like a G. At 21, I'm saying that. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> you were you were done with that? Honestly, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's quotes like that that make me happy because no one, no one can say to me, John, you've changed, man. Nah, I've always been like this. <laughs> so what was it? The really, it was just that you, you you were afraid of being somehow typecast? Yeah, I just, I just think at the time I, I was discovering just Hollywood for, for the first time. I was kind of learning on my feet as to how things worked. Yeah. And, and I, I was starting to understand that, that the industry is not going to do the specific work to make your career somewhat diverse or versatile. It's something that you have to really fight hard for. Yeah. And so when I started to realise that, I just started to get really frustrated. It's yeah. like, okay, cool. So they're going to just keep on bringing the kind of the same old thing. And you need people, you know, who support and believe in you to be able to believe that you can do something better and different right. that can kind of just add some versatility to your to your craft and, and open doors for other opportunities. Yeah. Well, it was, I guess, around, around that time, it sounds like even before you were contacted about Star Wars, you had friends that were being contacted about auditioning. Is that yeah, true? I put, I put friends on tape for Star Wars. So like people we've, we all know of? I put, I put friends on tape for Star Wars and I was playing Ray. <laughs> That's messed up. <laughs> I was there, no, seriously, I was there like fixing up the camera for him and, you know, I'd be like, oh, what, what is this for? And he'd be like, yeah, you know, don't tell anyone, it's for, it's for Star Wars. And, <laughs> you know, I can't lie, I'm feeling some type of way, like, you know, this is the first time I've heard they're seeing black people for Star right. Wars. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I was a bit like, yeah. where's the phone call? So Especially because I assume you knew it by that point that it was JJ doing it, right? Well, well I knew that, but I didn't. As I said, when I met him and he, and he said, oh, we're going to find you something, I didn't necessarily hold on to that because I'd, I've, I had come to LA and experienced various people who had, you know, promised that, you know, they'd, you know, consider me for this, that and that, and it right. didn't work out. So, I, you know, I just just understood that, you, you know, sometimes things happen and they, right. can't, they can't follow through. So. so how did you find out now that there was actually interest in you auditioning as well? I was on the train in, in London. I was coming back. I had a dodgy financial advisor at the time. <laughs> I went to, <laughs> that's all I could afford. <laughs> and I, I used to go see him in Tottenham and I was on the, on, on the train back to Southeast and my agent called me and told me that they want to see you for, for Star Wars. And how did you take that? I was just like, it's go time, man, finally. Like, yeah. <laughs> this was starting to get embarrassing. Right. You know? <laughs> Next person is going to tell me they audition for me is my dad. I'm like, what? <laughs> All right, so now that began what sounds like a almost kind of torturous period of something like seven months where there was no real clarity about where this was going and just repeatedly yeah. having to do different things that you could call auditions, I guess. But I mean, what were they asking of you in that time period? I mean, I guess the tricky thing about those auditions is that we didn't know, well, I didn't know who the character was. So they I could only share much. Yeah, so I, they couldn't share much. So I couldn't read the full script or anything. So I could only kind of guess what they what they wanted. But I knew that this was the the male lead. So I assumed that he was, you know, heroic and strong and and you know just upfront uh, upfront badass. And that wasn't the case. And so I, my second audition, 
was with JJ. And normally that uh, that hasn't happened with me specifically. Normally you meet the director for me anyway. Mm-hmm. The third audition, you know, later down the line. Mm-hmm. And my second audition was with JJ. And so he was there to help. Steer it a little bit. Yeah, but it, it was funny because sometimes I'd go to Pinewood to have a meeting with him and he'd have almonds in his hands and he was just like, okay, uh, trying to explain what the story is without giving it away. Right. And so it was just a comedy show. I was just like, what's this guy talking about, man? I still don't understand. <laughs> and would you get specific feedback about what you were doing that, you know, because this it sounds like you were there a lot of times. Each time yeah. you would go, would they just try to, aside from sharing a little bit of an overview of the story, would they say, you know what, we need you to do this a little differently or this a little differently? Yeah, I, need, I needed to train more, like lose some weight. I needed, to, there was a lighter edge that they liked to the character, more comedic flow. And I didn't know, just nobody said comedy. Maybe that was a secret as well. <laughs> I don't know, but I, it just took some time. But I appreciate the process because it really did feel like a workshop and it never did feel like, you know, like they weren't on my side. Like they wanted me to obviously right. come in and do the job, but it, it was hard to get there. I can't lie. It was I, I just didn't understand. Yeah, I'd, I'd never been in an audition in which, in which what you're auditioning for is a secret. <laughs> so as an actor, it's like, what? how do I go to where you need me to go? But So is that what kind of, it sounds like something motivated you to go check out on, on YouTube, as anyone can, the original auditions of Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill. Yeah, I just wanted to know, know what vibe they were going for, because I know the last set of trilogies were the prequels, and that had a completely different tone. Yeah. So I didn't know that whether they, with each trilogy, were trying to find a, a, a different thing. So then I, I realized that, you know what, I'm always off with my searching. I'm trying to search for a certain tone and, and I'm not getting it. So let me just go in, back to the originals and fix my tone to, to, to what they already know. And it was helpful. And it was very helpful. So take me through the day that you found out that you actually got this. I had a, a premiere for Half of the Yellow Sun the night before. And I went to, to Catford to go and stay with some friends. And in, in the morning when I woke up, I got an email from JJ saying, where are you? Question mark. <laughs> and I'm like, what's this guy trying to rob me or something? And I said, I'm in Southeast. And then I got a call from my agent saying, um, you need to get up now, JJ wants to meet you. And then JJ emailed me saying, I want to meet you, come to Mayfair. Mm-hmm. Nina Gold, the casting director, had been calling my agent because they, they were trying to get a hold of me. I didn't know what was, go- what yeah. was going on. Did you suspect? Um, I mean, I knew that, that it was decision-making time because after my last audition, I knew that was the last one. Right. But also I was just like, JJ's a nice guy. If he was going to tell me I didn't get the part, he'd probably, you know, invite me for some food, at least, you know, send him off to depression with a full stomach. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like JJ would have done that. Right. So um, right. I just got ready real quick and I, I went down to Mayfair to, to find out what he wanted to what he wanted to say. I, I mean, I'd love to know how, how that conversation went, but it sounds also like part of it, once he put it out there what it was about was also kind of cautionary like before you give me your answer you gotta think about some things yeah which was very nice actually which is very nice it it just goes to show that he also was taking into consideration our personal lives like our lives like being as this is like a cultural phenomenon so you sit down he says hi john now what yeah he was like he, he thanked me first the first thing he thanked me for was was for coming back 
And if I found that confusing, man, he was like, <laughs> he was like, no, thank you for co- you know for coming back to all the yeah yeah like I'm just gonna be like, yeah I'm blow up Star in. Wars yeah yeah. <laughs> well, even he, getting there though that day for you it sounds like was was a sacrifice. Yeah, I emptied up my account <laughs> just to get to the meeting where 70, he's gonna tell it was you seventy five pound crooks. Jesus, <laughs> it was a black cab at the time. Right, right, right. That's why we don't use you. <laughs> <laughs> Uber. <laughs> <laughs> it was seventy-five right. pounds. But it I'm sorry to interrupt because you were saying you so you get there after bankrupting yourself. You yeah, sit down. bankrupting like minus That's minus it. seventy-six pound ten. Is like, there, there's a fee also when ridiculous. you go under, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and so that's all the way from Catford over to Mayfair, and I right. get there, and JJ's sitting in an area that was just completely empty, right? Like the Godfather. Right? <laughs> he fully had the other side of the restaurant packed out, and he was just there on the other side by himself, and everywhere was empty and it was closed off. And I went to sit down. And he was on his phone, and he didn't even look up, look up at me when he was saying hi. He was just on his phone, like obviously <laughs> sending an important email. Right. That's when he asked me the important questions and and thanked me for being well, part of the process. Well, but first, breaking he first has to say you got it right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, after he asked, asked me about you know, you know, just basically like brief questions about right. you know whether or not I'd I'd be prepared for something like this. Then he went on to say, you know, I got it. You're the new star of Star Wars. Now, when he was saying to you. You had said in another interview that basically he, he said the job isn't just to be an actor in a movie. When you're doing something like Star Wars, it's a significant lifelong commitment to this thing. It could be an enormous burden. It did not give you any pause. I didn't care about that, man. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I didn't hear, I didn't hear any of that. <laughs> I thought about right. that later. Like, yeah. oh, yeah, he had a point. <laughs> it was just, you know, I yeah, can because, get home now, right? Because <laughs> I, I, I auditioned for a whole bunch of stuff that I thought I was going to get. Yeah. I auditioned for Kingsman. Okay. I auditioned for Maleficent. I auditioned for, like, I auditioned for so many stuff, like, so much stuff. That I was the maze runner. Yeah. You know, I thought I was going to book those jobs. So. Right. But this would be a different magnitude in the sense that people's generations of families are I know. So this, in right? my mind, I was thinking, after all those big movies that you flopped on, right. imagine the story if you go and get Star Wars. <laughs> I'm like, that's a good you book. You just wanted a good uh, bar <laughs> that's a, story or something. That's a real yeah. good, that's right. a real good narrative yeah, right, right there. <laughs> so I just, <laughs> well, I just, I just went towards it. I was just like, this is going to be the final one. I, I'm like, if I didn't get Star Wars, I probably would have taken some time off because I was like so close to the opportunity within a short amount of time. Yeah. So that would have been a, a bit, a bit stressful. And after it had sort of sunk in a little bit more when, when maybe, I mean, had you been a guy that was into Star Wars as a kid or any of that stuff? Yeah, I loved, I loved Star Wars. I loved sci-fi as a, as, as a whole. And, but yeah. so then knowing, have, have, being familiar with it, you know that while it's obviously helped to catapult a lot of careers, Harrison Ford probably first and foremost among them, it also, there are some people who we don't really ever see again after Star Wars, and yeah. they're very, it's, it's out there. I mean, it's not like a, a secret, partly because I guess you can get so typecast or not typecast, but just associated with, with a character. That, well, yeah, because it's, it's a massive, there's a massive brand. And, yeah. and so it, with other projects, it can be hard for other people to like differentiate the two. So none of that though was, it sounds like you weren't ever too worried about any of these side things. No, I, I, I wasn't. Because, and the main reason was because I was, I was, I had worked before. And so maybe, maybe the projects I'd done before just, just meant something yeah. in comparison. But at the same time, I just trusted that my skills would pull me through. I'd be able to do other things convincingly, you know, to con- to convince those that probably saw it as a Star Wars thing with every every movie. Right. Yeah. 
Did JJ ever articulate to you why he chose you over these others? I don't know. Till this day, I don't. I don't really know. As long as I got the part, to be honest. yeah. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> that check came right. through, goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess chronologically, the, the the next thing that came up here was that you know I guess Star Wars fans feel particularly passionately about their they feel possessive of the whole franchise, of um, they do, yeah. you know. Yeah. And throughout the history of Star Wars, there had been. Drops of diversity we'd seen, of course, you know, Billy Dee Williams and Samuel L. Jackson, and then, I guess, behind the mask, James Earl Jones. Mm. But as news got out that this new Star Wars was going to center around a young white woman, a young black man, young black British man, Mm. and a young Guatemalan American, some of these guys turned out not to be very happy about that and, in fact, were Mm. quite rude about it. And I just wonder, you know, you had been a increasingly, I guess, well-known person, but probably more on a local and yeah, national on a local level. Yeah, now you're in yeah. front of the whole world, and you're having to deal with the, particularly, I guess, after the trailer, the the crap of some of these bigots. How did you personally handle that? I mean, at first, I was quite pissed because you know I just didn't, I just didn't understand what the what the issue was. To be honest with you, I had perspective on it because it just taught me something about how bad things work and how how much bad things can be louder than good things. And to be honest with you, that whole boycott Star Wars thing, it didn't really have a lot of numbers. It was a lot of good people who were talking about it mm-hmm. that gave it the, the media attention. It wasn't a big enough movement to do anything to, to box office, to, Clearly, to the movie's yeah. success. So, it, yeah. it, so as much as it did disturb me, to be honest with you, it, it also exposed me to how much, you know, good people yeah. are out there who were just like, no, it doesn't really matter. Right. And it was most people. So for me, that made it easy for me to res- respond in a, in a way that was just, my most of my comments were, were basically thank yous to, to the right. fans and then, you know, to and the rest of them. And pretty cool like, uh, Instagram F you to the others. Yeah, <laughs> man, it was just like, to be honest, it, 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 was, it was that kind of a moment, but it was yeah. also like get used to it because... I knew about other roles that other people were booking. It wasn't just about me. People were in other franchises and who weren't necessarily white. And that for me was, it, it's just a time and yeah. something they would have to live through. So I was just trying to warn them, man. Yeah, I care about those guys, man. Yeah. Just trying to warn you. <laughs> <laughs> well, just a couple other quick Star Wars things and then on from that. But I just have to ask you, when along the line did you meet the original three, Harrison, Mark, and Carrie? And did they as probably, you know, really... Uh, the small club of people who could understand what you were about to experience to some degree, although that was, they went through it before the internet. Did they have any kind of words of, of wisdom that were useful as you went out into the desert and wherever else you guys made this and, and went to work? I feel like the ad- advice any of them gave was based on that particular day. <laughs> you know. You mean the drink water. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was Nothing it wasn't yeah, sure. it wasn't like big long time kind of you know, long term kind of advice. Right. Nothing Yoda esque. No, yes. no, it wasn't like that on set. Because I mean I guess it is different different times, but it was always good to, I would particularly learn from the stories that each of them would tell, you know. I'd I'd learn I'd learn from that more than anything. I just think that you get you get onto set and Although like, you know, myself and, and, and Daisy, you know, you, we were the youngest and kind of like the kids on the set, there's still work to be to be done. And so you just keep it, you just keep it going. And the scale of everything just being so huge, that was, 
and and unlike I think anything you or probably anyone had had experienced up to that point, mm. you you just still approach your job of acting in exactly the same way or yeah because the bigger the better if you have like visual effects and things like you know around you that help support the a scene and 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 it's you know high quality it's it's excitement for me anyway like it doesn't intimidate me it makes me just more excited to work because you're you're just given an opportunity to now you know be as close as you're ever going to get to to being a space hero yeah and it's the biggest of of all time and that for me it's just motivation to just want to have fun really so you get through that whole period you get to the world premiere which i was able to go there through through my work it was exciting and hugely exciting and special for me and to bring my brother so i can't even imagine what it was like for you and i know you brought some special guests as well and i just wonder what that whole evening was like because i would imagine that's when it kind of sunk in what you had fully been i don't know if you'd seen the movie before but i would guess that just the whole you know the whole thing probably took on a new feeling after that yeah definitely it definitely did just a the, the reality that Star Wars was going to be released to, to the world and that people all over the world would see it. Many people would have different opinions. You know, your your face is now in the public eye. And at the time, everybody's giving advice. You know, things are going to change. Fame. And everyone's <laughs> and now everybody's changing as well. Everybody's getting all fearful about right. what's about to happen. And I was kind of like, you know, okay, cool. I'll just ride the wave just to see how it goes for me. Right. And it was great. It was it was a it was a time I got to invite, especially the premiere in, in LA. Mm-hmm. Everybody that basically helped me while I was staying out here, who'd given me a place to stay when I needed it, who'd who you know drove me down to my auditions. They they got to come and and some friends able. from home. Yeah, man. That, that yeah, home. The premiere in London. I had like everybody from home. Yeah. How did things? change i mean obviously they had to have in a major way but like what could you no longer do that you had done before what do you miss doing i mean what was just the actual impact on your life of the whole world now seeing this movie in almost record numbers i mean it was great having you know a whole bunch having the film do well i don't know but i've i've always felt detached to that because it's what we just we just caught we all share the burden everybody worked hard so I, I didn't necessarily feel like some kind of distinct pressure in in any way. I think at the time as well, we were we weren't in one country long enough to feel the <laughs> right. the heat because we were moving around doing publicity. I I didn't I wasn't as exposed. But at the end of that whole press tour and everything, you just go home and go. Yeah, out it was, with yeah. I just went on. I just went. On, I just got on with my with my life. To be yeah. honest with you, you know, you're getting recognised here and there, but it, you know. It's, it's not you're not some Harry Styles stuff like it was <laughs> like it was it was pretty right it was it was pretty manageable. mild yeah, yeah yeah until today it it is actually manageable like I don't know how long that's gonna last right but it's just one film it's right. one movie and and it just it was it was calm it wasn't as bad as I thought it was gonna be already at that point I mean how early maybe even during the making the movie when did you start thinking about how do I follow Star Wars with something outside of Star Wars because obviously the Star Wars commitment's gonna be ongoing but What's going to be the first thing I do after Star Wars? Was it a, a strategic decision? Well, I, I knew I wanted to to work between the films because I I understood that m- most of the population would probably be introduced to me through Star Wars, mm-hmm. um, and and not all of them would go back to see my early work. So there was obviously something to prove in terms of versatility and the other stuff that I could do, and then that's why I, I joined the Circle. I just wanted to be 
collab in collaboration with a good cast. You should say Tom Hanks. And, and you know, yeah. yeah, Tom Hanks is pretty self-explanatory. Yes. Even though I didn't have any scenes with him, it was just nice to be a part, yeah. of, a part of something like that. And I'd done that as a, as a way to kind of just break it up a bit. Yeah. And every time I'd do something, I'd realise that I just needed something bigger. Yeah. Just something, just, I need something significant to do between these movies that just, you know, makes a separation. When you say significant, you mean significant in what way? Significant in story, significant in director, in, in the other cast members that I'm, I'm going to be put with. Just just something that when someone sees the project on paper, they go, this could be really good. Right. Just to collaborate with the best, really. Well, that, that leads nicely into Detroit, of course, where we'll just tell people who are going to be having the opportunity to catch up with this over the coming weeks as it rolls out. You play Melvin Dismukes, security guard who winds up in the Algiers Motel during a horrific incident that, that takes place there in 1967 in Detroit. You've said already of this movie, quote, this was huge to me. To me, this is the biggest thing I've ever done so far. It's the biggest movie of my career so far. And you added, quote, this movie is far beyond anything I've ever done, close quote. So how do you, I guess to begin with, how did you wind up working here with the the first female director ever to win the Best Director Oscar, Catherine Bigelow. Mm-hmm. And then also, what is it about the project that even after something as huge as Star Wars would would lead you to say what I just quoted? I got a call from, from my agent to audition for this in New York. I just came out of nowhere. And it was very quick because of the times between the Star Wars films, it was like, this is, this is probably something you want to get involved with. It's an ensemble piece, so you won't be in for the whole run. So it, it's enough of a commitment where you can also go and jump back into back into Star Wars, but you will be a part of, of something, you know, that comes from the best kind of creative quality. And it's Catherine Bigelow at the time. It was called an untitled Catherine Bigelow Project. Right. So I flew out to New York and I auditioned in front of her and then I'd done some, some improv. And then after that, I got the full script and got the part and I was back to London for prep. I bet post-Star Wars, you're probably getting a lot of people that are offering you things without having to audition. So the, what made this worth going through an audition was that it was Catherine Bigelow? Yeah, it was Catherine Bigelow. Um, I needed to know for myself that I could do it. It's not easy doing roles that that sometimes are are based on, on true events without feeling like you obviously you want to be as integral as you can be to the story and the truth of it. So it, it was that in itself that, that attracted me to it and attracted me to auditioning. Yeah, I just wanted to go through the process so that if I did book the role, I, I knew I deserved it right. in a sense. Not not just because everyone's giving it to me because I'm in the Star Wars. Right, movie. right, right. Um, now, unfortunately, at least prior to the release of your film, I would say that most Americans today, and particularly young Americans, don't know what happened in Detroit in 1967. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, therefore, that it's not sort of central to what Brits also learn about or know about. So when did you first become aware of this horrific kind of incident? I knew about the uprising in Detroit from a while back. I stayed with a family in Inglewood and we watched a documentary called Hidden Colors. And within that was several different stories about black history that was quite, you know, distant from from what we know. And we, when they talk about black history, the main story is obviously Martin Luther King right. And, right. and Malcolm X. And for us in the UK, especially, is the obviously the, the, the move-in from a lot of Caribbeans um, who came in and basically helped build the infrastructure of London. And so for me, that, that those stories were were just far detached from what I from what I knew about 
And so I knew about the uprising in Detroit. You know, I knew about you know the destruction of, of, of Black Wall Street. I knew about those distinct stories, but I didn't know about what happened at the Algiers Motel okay. specifically. I had no idea. So yeah, that I was surprised when I first read it. Yeah. We should emphasize that Melvin Dismukes is a real man who is still with us. And so I wonder beyond the script, you know, were you able to speak with him and learn more about his perspective before the camera started rolling? Yeah, once I got the part, I was, we jumped on a, a conference call first and we had a very long, lengthy discussion with myself and Catherine and, and Melvin. At first it was just about getting to know him, you know, just getting to know, you know, what he's like and just how life is for him at the moment. You know, reminiscent conversation about his childhood and about stuff that he used to do. And then we, we got into the, the nitty grits of, of the actual events and his opinions of that. It was, it was a very informative conversation. I was, I was amazed to learn in a piece about you and Will Poulter that was just in the LA Times that he, he takes flack from a lot of people for the way he handled himself, which I just can't believe because it seems to me that he... Yeah, I mean, he was labeled an Uncle Tom because people expected him to be a hero, to, to, to do something more to ensure the safety of those of those boys, even though the, the, the safety of, of those men as civilians is really in the hands of those officers. Right. Because that's their job. Right. It's not his job. No. He didn't have to be there. He didn't prepare for that. And most people that are talking about that are probably tweeting it from a nice air-conditioned room <laughs> and are not in the circumstance he, he was in. Yeah, what, do they, what would they have him do? Everybody thinks they're Spider-Man until they yeah, get right. into the damn suit. <laughs> everybody, right. everybody has a, a suggestion they would make right. as to how someone should have handled the situation. <laughs> Come on, man. There's like so many crazy officers with guns, you know, around him. He could have been flanked. Anything could have happened. Right. I wouldn't have left the grocery store. Well, just the fact that he stayed there is probably something that kept the situation from being even worse. And he spoke about that. He spoke that he, and, he, and you'll see in the movie that, that especially Cross, Will Poulter's character, he always references Desmukes when he's about to do something. There's always a, a look because he's super aware that he, he is there. And so Melvin spoke about that and said that it, it felt like his presence you know, bought some form of, of, of time or, or balance to the situation. And he was really brainstorming as to what to do. And he, and he knows that, you know, maybe I could have done this, maybe I could have done that. But in the moment, it, I didn't wake up preparing for this. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, like, right. <laughs> I'm the only guy, like, right. I'm the only guy there. It's crazy. So I don't know, like, I think it's wrong that he was treated yeah. in, in, in that way. I read that maybe the most effective way of you feeling what it was like to be him or the people who have really followed in terms of being the the victims of police brutality yeah. was when the schedule shifted one yeah. day what what happened there and why did why did that really tap in you know sort of connect with you in a way you couldn't have anticipated i mean and, and that also ties into a question i didn't get to answer before sure. about about detroit being the biggest movie in my career so far yeah. i remember someone Someone was telling me yesterday that they read up on that and they go, are you crazy? You've been in Star Wars. How could Detroit be the biggest movie of your career? Because it depends what you value as quality. Right. And for me, quality is longevity and longevity in acting is, is, is an access to, to, to skills and, and an appeal that, that could see you getting work for, for years, hopefully. And so for me, I just felt like I discovered that side of myself while doing Detroit. Right. So that in itself will be the biggest movie of my career right. because whatever you see me do after the Detroit, 
would have been inspired by, you know, the, the, the artistic freedom I felt I had, how deep I was able to go emotionally into a character, which gives me freedom for other things. And that day was the day that I discovered that because we were supposed to shoot a completely different scene and we had a technical difficulty. And so sound were picking up a, a, an AC that couldn't, couldn't be turned off at that side of the building. Mm -hmm. So we had to go and use that interrogation room. As, and that was the only scene that we could film. And this is the scene, just to contextualize, and you know, people will hopefully listen to this after they've seen the movie. They they kind of turn the tables on you and make it yeah. as if you're potentially a perpetrator of what happened there. Mm -hmm. And so now, all of a sudden, you're on the defensive. Yeah, Melvin is now um, facing a, a first degree murder charge, and that in itself was a big shock to him and something that I had to to film. And so I. I hadn't filmed the because before the way it was set up that I would film these scenes that would kind of like give me much more just warm me up for that scene, you right. know. And, and we didn't get to do that because of the time, so I had to find some way of going there, and any way I could go there is to to try and through the character anyway, all times through the character is to is to relate to to things that are happening now that has made me feel personally some type of way. Hence why I referenced Sandra Bland and Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and those situations that we've 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 seen coming up where you see kind of a, a thread connecting what happened. yeah there's a connection and, and and for me for me the shock of us still having that conversation just as a, a mere reaction on screen could also mirror the shock of you just now being told that you're you're about to to go down in a, in a horrible way and your life is going to change in a negative way even mm -hmm. though you haven't you haven't done anything mm -hmm. and so for me I was able to just kind of you know, do it. Just do it. A little bit of a cheat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah, um, turn it into a and a and, and then and then just turn it into into the motivation for for the scene. Yeah. Being as I didn't I didn't prep for it that day. For an audience member who had nothing to do with the making of the movie, it feels I think like a pressure cooker. You just feel it building and building and building, and you yeah. just wait. So I wonder though, for you guys on the set, it just seems hard to imagine that this is one where you can just hear cut and you know have a have a fun time. What was the vibe on the set? The vibe was good. There was a, obviously a level of intensity we had to keep. I was quite isolated a lot of the times, just given the character and I want, what I wanted to to convey while the cameras were rolling. Just a fresh insight of knowing that Melvin is is basically the silent observer of all of these things. So I just wanted to keep my reactions fresh, and I just think the the, the vibe was was cool, and and it wasn't always serious, yeah. especially when Anthony Mackie was on set <laughs> talking about those damn cocoa beans on the island that he. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was good vibes, and everybody, in order to get that deep in in terms of the scenes, and even in terms of the abuse and the, and the name calling and the, you know, all of that. In order to get there, we had to have a level of of, of unity between us, and we did. And everyone was cool, asking if everyone was all right, you know. Half of those boys, as soon as they were done, you know, on those walls, they'd go to the to the food food stop and and, <laughs> and ham down paninis. Jacob Lattimore, I'm gonna call him out. Jacob Lattimore. Yeah, that's there we what go. Jacob, that's all Jacob was doing. <laughs> it's too funny. <laughs> so it was. We had really fun moments. Right. Yeah. So as the film's been rolling out for people that are, I guess, paid to have an opinion, whether it's a critic or pundit or whatever, there's been wonderful feedback. I think the the movie's still at like 100 percent or something on Rotten Tomatoes. But as always, there's people that find something to bitch about. And in this case, the, the two things I want to just ask you to, if you can offer your sort of take on, I would say, I'm assuming rebuttal, is that some people, black and white, are, are raising the question of whether it is appropriate for Catherine Bigelow, a white person, mm. to tell the story 
of what was an incident that primarily affected black people. Yeah. What's the way you see that? For me, I just kind of uh, connect that and I understand that thought and, and, and the thought is not something to be dismissed. But for me, I, I when, when I had that thought, it was more on the, on, on the level of she has obviously decided to use her platform, her success so far, to shed a light on this particular story. And knowing that the work she's done, this is gonna be done in a very tasteful, tasteful way. We're gonna get good characters, good story. We're gonna get a real perspective on, on the truth. And that's something that I was just like, it's interesting that she herself is putting, us, putting herself in that position. Because one thing we should take out of that question is that she's not trying to take the mick out of black people. Right. And if you are gonna take the mick out of black people, I don't think you'd put your face out there in interviews and do a whole big movie about it. No, no. <laughs> That'd be the even if you are racist, I'm thinking right. it's the wrong way to handle right, it. Right, you know, right, so right. that you're you're moving a bit uh, exposed there. Right, right. But she she approached with a lot of integrity and and respect. And for me, as she said, I don't. I personally, she doesn't think she is the right person, you know, to do it. She said that many times, but she just felt compelled to do to, to to do her thing. And for me, the only thing that I could really rely on I can't rely on her experience I can't rely on her her particular perspective because she is who she is uh, but what I can rely on is her openness to learn seeing the uh, great research team she has around her the fact that she has embraced the real people the real survivors of this situation the fact that they were you know there on set for me I, it that that in itself is it, it grows trust and this is someone who who put in time and work and and research and and to be honest with you you know, despite her detachment to this narrative, we all had to do a level of research, yeah. you know, some of which was similar to what she had to do mm -hmm. because we didn't know about this. We weren't, we weren't there. And despite the fact that, yes, I am black, Algie's black, Jacob's black, we all haven't had these significant, you know, direct experiences that our characters go through. So we all, in a sense, have to have to research and have to fill in the the blanks to a detachment that we have. Well, that that anticipates the the part B, which is that nothing. It's something that I know you've heard and responded to, I guess, before. But it's it comes up here where you know this whole debate over within the black community of actors. There are some people who say imply that basically American black people should be portrayed by American black actors, and even beyond that, that will. Poulter, you know, as a Brit playing a, an American, they, they were, what do we say to this though? I mean, it seems to me you can get pretty ridiculous with this. These are not documentaries. I mean, it's just a sensitive time. So you have to understand first, uh, like I believe that before you come up with a response, just understand what the concern is. Mm -hmm. And understand in a time in which, you know, representation is is, is a hard thing to, to get and diversity is a hard thing to get people feel some type of way. They feel like, okay, the one role that we do get, can it just be one of us in it? And I understand that, but it can't be that way. Yeah. <laughs> it can't be that Life's way. Not fair. I'm sorry, I gotta work. <laughs> I gotta work, goddammit. <laughs> gotta work, goddammit. <laughs> you know, it's, and I understand it, but, and, and the reason why I, I laugh is because also it, it's a lack of knowledge it's a lack of knowledge a lot of people have that opinion based on the fact that they don't know about the black experience outside of america so all of these lines that they think are blurred to us because it, they think it's all tea and crumpets <laughs> in the uk they don't understand that that right. race relations the black experience the vibe of blacks we are not detached from that just because we're not in the states and even furthermore 
a lot of us in the UK are directly from Africa. (laughs) (laughs) Like our mum and dad still have names like, you know, Umbutu and Oluwatunde. So like (laughs) we we have a distinct connection to that. And so it doesn't take much for us to go there. And also there's creative... There's creative freedom, man. That's what actors do. And I don't know what the system is like in terms of how they teach in the uh, drama schools in the United States. But in the UK, you are taught to harness your skills so that you can reflect it onto characters that are not you. And a guy tweeted me the other day. He was hilarious. He said, nice American accent, John, but next time take the American SAT before you play an American. And I, and I asked him, okay, cool, that's, that's fine, but what test do I take for Star Wars? <laughs> I, I want to know what, right, which one. Right, oh my God, they're such idiots. But I don't get frustrated right. by that because it's, it's just, it's a lack of knowledge. Yeah. And then also it's just understandable because it is a sensitive time in which, yeah. you know. Yeah. With the remaining few minutes here, I just have some big picture, not that these weren't big picture questions, these most recent ones, but... I guess, first of all, who do you hope will see Detroit and and what do you hope they will take away from it? I think, and and this is obviously a a simple answer, but that's how I feel. I just think it's for everyone. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I say everyone is because we are now at a time where we really do need to work on this whole how to coexist thing. Like, <laughs> like, like it, it's really getting to the time where we yeah. need to figure this whole thing out. Mm-hmm. And I think that does require a level of unity. And I think there is power in unity. So I just feel like everybody needs to see it because it's uncomfortable to each person, each race for obviously different reasons. Mm-hmm. But I think that if if the right intention is there, it can lead to... To, to good, healthy dialogue. So I just hope everybody sees it. Maybe not the kids. Um, yeah, old, <laughs> give them a little kids, time. Yeah. Yeah. Give them a little time. You've said, quote, all the films I've done have had a secret commentary on stereotypical mentalities. It's about getting people to drop prejudice state of mind and realize, quote, oh shit, we're just watching normal people, close quote, which is sort of what I think you're, you've just said. But yeah. do you think it's purely coincidental that those are the projects that you've done or are you subconsciously drawn to that kind of material. I mean, we, I say we, because myself and, and the team that support mm-hmm. me are, are very fixated on, on making everything a distinct decision. And now I'm at a, a point where I can yeah. really do that. So that's something that we, that we do. And I, I just like, I like to be in things I like to watch and, and, and some of the things I like to watch have great deep messages. And that's what I will do from time to time. Later this year, we'll obviously get to see you again as as Finn and in The Last Jedi, which is Ryan Johnson's installment. You've obviously got a lot of secrets that you've got to keep about that. But is there is there anything you can say about how it might differ from The Force Awakens? Force Awakens was a, a great foundation. And now we're about to bi- build the big house. <laughs> <laughs> and you have said much darker and yeah, yeah. that your part's more physical. Yeah, very physical. Very Finn, Finn is much more active and involved in the fight, which is something that I really wanted. So right. Since cool. The Force Awakens, we obviously tragically lost Carrie Fisher, who I believe you worked very closely with, particularly mm-hmm. on The Last Jedi. Yeah. How did you learn of her passing, and how do you think audiences are going to feel about the handling of her exit from the franchise? I learned about her passing one, while I was in on holiday in, in Nigeria on my Christmas break. So that was a bit of... It was, it was weird. It was a bit of a shock. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the send-off is really 
is really cool because even before she passed away, I'd see certain scenes and be like, no, this is really cool for, for both Carrie and Mark, mm-hmm. who are the, are the last two mm-hmm. you know, original leads. Mm-hmm. I felt like, especially for me, like I felt like they, they deserve more and more, you know, They've, they've been doing this for, for a while and, and, and have been the beating heart of, of something special. And I just feel like Eight just pays homage to them in general before her passing. But unfortunately, now she's passed, it, it does have a deeper a deeper meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think it still does facilitate that mm-hmm. as well, which, which for me is perfect. And I think the fans are going to appreciate that. Sure. And then the last two, just I guess in 2018, we're going to see you as the lead in Pacific Rim Uprising, which happens to be the first project to come about through... Upper Room Entertainment Limited, which is the production company that you formed in 2016. Obviously, people would love to hear anything about the film, but I'm Mm -hmm. more interested even in what was it that motivated you to start your own production company? Because, you know, all of this is a learning process for me and and whatever decision I make is in reaction to what I'm seeing. And even until now, I, I just see an industry that needs fresh, new, original stories, an industry that can sometimes ignore the gems in upcoming artists and those who are not fully established. And I just wanted to make a forum in which I could I could do what I want mm-hmm. and, and have my own creative process the way Catherine Bigelow has her creative process, the way J.J. Abrams has his creative process. And I just saw it fit that it had to work through a, a company. Yeah. And I just always wanted to be behind the scenes as well. And, and I've always had a love for the quiet negotiators, um, <laughs> which are producers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've always had love for them, the, the guardian angels of a project. Um, and I've always wanted to be one. And so that's why um, I gave birth to Upper Room. Well, so finally, looking ahead to the to the long-term future, during which it sounds like you're going to do both acting and producing, if you had to choose one other person's career path to have yours resemble, who would it be? I like what James Cameron has done with his career. And I say that because if you're given a big enough platform to have your own significant brand and stamp on whatever you do, it's innovative, it's forward thinking. I think that's a a solid career, man. And he got his own island. I just have to mention that. I want one. (laughs) Well, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.